Welcome to the PokePress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. This episode has two segments. First, Anne from PKP Podcast returns to talk about the music of Pokemon Ranger in the Temple of the Sea, where a thing to be protected takes on Together We Make a Promise. These two very different songs lead to another interesting discussion. The second segment is an archival interview with Brian Steckler, co-writer of Catch Me If You Can from Pokemon the First Movie. As it turns out, Brian has had quite an interesting career, covering commercials, TV, and more. Thanks. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich here at the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Anne from PB Podcast. And yet again, we're doing a discussion comparing the ending themes of a Pokemon movie between Japanese and English. And we've made it up to Movie 9, uh, the Manaphy movie, Pokemon Ranger and the Temple of the Sea. And so the two songs we have this time on the Japanese side, there is A Thing to Be Protected by Soelu. I hope I said that right. And then on the English side, we have Together We Make a Promise by Corey Yarkin. And uh, just to let you know, uh, it is sometimes called Together We'll Make a Promise, W-E apostrophe L-L, but the credits specifically do say Together We Make a Promise. But that's going to be what's going head-to-head in this one. And uh, in our first, I guess you could say, phase, we talk about what we know about the artists themselves and anything leading up to the song. And what can you tell me about Soelu? Oh, not so much. Um, she was originally born Harada Aki. I, I do believe her stage name is Soeru, like soul, and it's just really stylized. She began her career in 2002 with the ballad Beautiful Dreamer and was signed to Death Star Records in, with Sony Music Japan. And like the song Mamoru Bekimono, uh, A Thing to Be Protected, she's an R&B pop artist, so that's kind of in her wheelhouse. A lot of her songs kind of have that that rhythmic feel. Um, and American fans might know her through her song I Will, which was an ending theme for Full Metal Alchemist. Her most recent album was 29 Tonight in 2012, and she's left Death Star Records and is now signed to Avix Tracks. She wasn't the, the composer or the lyricist, just the performing artist. The composer and lyricist is uh, Nishio Yoshihiko, and he's a music producer behind a lot of major pop, pop artists, but uh, unfortunately there's not a lot of inco- info I can find on him in English. He does have a bit of a YouTube presence, though, so if you like this song and want to do some digging into other things he's been involved in, that's a good place to start. Let's see... The song uh, Mamoru Bekimono was on the album 24, and that's really all I can tell you about the behind the scenes. I, I think it's fair to say, though, it was definitely um, a tie-in song to the movie, but not written specifically for this movie. Like, it definitely is prioritized to be able to stand alone as a single. <laughs> Sounds like she likes to put uh, numbers in some of her titles there. Yeah, she might she might have a style she's going for there. <laughs> hey, if it worked for Adele, you never know. Yeah. But, um, well, on the English side, I think I may actually be able to do about the same. Unfortunately, this movie was released before I really was making a, a big effort to get uh, musician interviews, so I don't 
have any uh, personal correspondence with, with Corey, but what I do know is that, let's see, she was born in 82. She does have an, an album out there, but uh, some of the uh, kind of miscellaneous things were, were what jumped out to me. First of all, she does have a website. It was started in like 2010 and hasn't been updated since like 2012, but you can can dig that up if you want to. Looking through some of her social media, um, she's still active on Twitter. Actually, kind of, kind of sadly, the last tweet we found, we were, we're hopeful and and pretty sure she's probably okay by now. But we were recording this in September 2017. A couple of weeks ago, on September 10th, she uh, posted a tweet uh, referencing what was happening, I guess, with Hurricane Irma. So because uh, she's uh, from Orlando, and uh, speaking of which, apparently she has some sort of involvement with the. Orlando Magic. Uh, I don't know if she did choreography for them, if she was a, a, a one of their cheerleader dancer or whatever things they had there. Cool. Um, but apparently she has some sort of involvement with, with that. The other person who's involved with this is Jimmy Robertson Landry. I uh, hope I said that one right. Um, who is, uh, you know, the writer and I guess a, a producer. So, you may notice that that's not a name we typically associate with Pokemon music. You have to remember this was, this is movie nine, so this is right when the dub switchover happens. And even though John Leffler and his new partner, uh, David Wolfert, uh, had sort of taken over, uh, for some reason they were not, uh, the writers of the ending song for this movie for whatever reason. Uh, the, the only real connection I can come up with is I was digging through Wikipedia and it looks like Corey was signed by Cherry Lane Music which was also involved with some of the, the Pokemon stuff from the, uh, from the first couple seasons. And, and I guess it, they're not the, like the, the, the CD publisher, but they're, I think they're the quote unquote music publisher for some of that stuff. It's, it's kind of complicated music business things, but that was about the closest thing I can think of. I do not know if this song was written for this movie. I have some kind of ideas we may talk about later, but cannot really confirm or deny that, unfortunately. But yeah, you can certainly look these folks up, but I wasn't able to find too much uh, illuminating. Uh, Corey does have some other work. She has an album or two out there. So if you're interested, you can certainly take a look at that. Cool. Yeah, if you'd have... If you'd have told me, though, with this song, Together We Make a Promise, that it was written for the movie, I'd have believed you, though, like, lyrically. <laughs> yeah, there are definitely some things that sync up well. Uh, maybe not as well as some other stuff, but we'll we'll see about that. In any case, uh, going back over to the Japanese side, um, let's talk about sort of the overall style of A Thing to Be Protected. You had said, like, pop R&B. Do you want to sort of elaborate on that as it applies to this song? <laughs> well, I'm probably the wrong person to talk about musical genres in depth. But yeah, it's it's a ballad, but it's definitely got a bit of a groove and a swing to it. And just kind of a very soulful sort of song. Um, yeah, I don't know how to explain R&B, but it's definitely... <laughs> yeah, but it's got kind of that pop feel that like you would expect a song like this to be on the top 50 or the top 20 on any radio station, I think. Hmm. <laughs> what about the... Let's, let's talk a little bit about the lyrics then. Um, what is this song actually talking about? There is a little bit of English in there, but mostly Japanese. So, So fill us in. Yeah, so this is a very kind of sad song about uh, a relationship that has 
for whatever reason, separated, whether it's because they broke up or, you know, became a long distance relationship or whatever. And it's kind of the, the artist, the main character is singing about how even when they were together, they kind of felt a distance. And so there's a bit of a feeling of regret that they couldn't maybe make that relationship to the fullest regret that now that they feel love and they kind of know how to protect their lover and, and the relationship in general that now they are separated. So it's, it's really sad and it kind of just has that feeling of distance, but the love between the two people is still very much alive. So very bittersweet. Hmm. You definitely get the feel of a relationship, whether it was a, a romantic or a friendship, that it was very precious, both at the time that they were enjoying it together. And now that it doesn't really exist, they still it is still a very precious thing to this person. I see. You know, I, I'll have to admit. Uh, so first of all, as I said in our Movie 8 episode, I had not watched Movie 9 until the day we actually did this. But I did want to say that the a thing to be protected, a couple times while listening to it, it made me tear up a little bit. Maybe on some of my more moody days, I'm not sure. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's not as much of a tearjerker as some other Pokemon songs that will uh, reliably make me tear up a little bit. But um, definitely a, a fair bit of emotion here. Definitely, yeah. When I first heard this song, like, I had bought the DVD, and it was at a time when I was living in Japan and kind of going through the burnout phase of culture shock and culture adjustment. So this was a very emotional song for me. There was, a, I was, I was tearing as well. So it is, there's just so much like love and also bitter sadness in this, in these lyrics. One thing I noticed while listening to it today is it seemed to be something about it made it feel kind of like a short song. It's about, it's not the, certainly not the longest ending theme song to a Pokemon movie, but it feels like it goes by relatively quickly, independent of the actual tempo. Do you ever get a feeling like that? Um, not especially, no. Like, but you're right in that it doesn't drag, but... Like, the chorus is quite short. And it does, like, because it is R&B and it does have that very, you know defined beat and it's always moving forward that might be part of how that impression comes across is that it, like it, it's not a ballad that kind of milks its moment you know it, it's more of a ballad that just kind of keeps moving so that might have something to do with with that impression you're getting yeah because because going back to it today after not listening to it for a while it it definitely seemed like it was shorter than I I thought it was. I I felt it had been a little bit longer in my mind, mm. and uh, it was kind of I want to say over before I knew it. I certainly got a fair bit out of it, but it, it doesn't um, stick around super long. I guess you could say I, I'm having trouble putting it exactly in the words, but that was one observation I made uh, when I was listening to it today. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how much else I can totally say about it, but I mean. The, the subject matter is definitely something that uh, many songs have been written about and many songs will be written about. Yeah. <laughs> it is uh, it is a deep, deep well. <laughs> you, know, you take the, I suppose, 
if, even if it's not romantic love, it's it's still something a lot of folks can relate to. Is mm-hmm. and especially yourself being you know overseas. So yeah, I, I certainly <laughs> remember like my first semester at college when I was pretty far away. That was a bit of a, a different experience. So yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's go back over to the English side. Uh, I did want to talk a fair bit about this uh, about uh, together we make a promise. First off, I did want to say the instrumentation. As a Pokemon song, I, I, well, as a song from that era, it's kind of hard to say that about a song that's only about 10 years old, but it is, seems like it more or less uh, fits that era, but not really that era of what, like, Pokemon was, was doing, which is still normally deeply rooted in, say, the, you know, quote-unquote kids' music genre, and also sort of, uh, to me at least, the late 90s, early 2000s, that type of sound. This is more of a, I'm not sure exactly, it, it's some sort of rock-ish song. I'm not really sure what sort of subgenre I would put it in. <laughs> Any thoughts on that, Anne? No. <laughs> like I said, I am the wrong person to talk about music genres and what the criteria are. But I think you're definitely right in, like, there is a different feel to this song than, say, the couple that came before and the couple that will come after that were kind of the in-house Pokemon Company songs. Yeah, it's definitely not a ballad. At least I would certainly not describe it that way. It's got sort of a a deepness to it that you would really expect, I think, from a movie aimed at an older audience than, than the sort of typical Pokemon audience. Yeah. Now, this is more something that, you know, your your parents might listen to or something like that. It, it does kind of have a drive, like, I don't know if I'd necessarily say power ballad, but kind of headed towards that direction. It's like, it's not a real fast song, but it's definitely got a strength behind it and a, and a sh- push, I guess. That, that's definitely a good way of describing it. The The guitar work is definitely... I mean, it's not the same as this side of paradise. It's definitely got a, I don't know if harsher is the right word. It's not, like I said, it's not in the heavy metal area. It's got more, maybe more body or deepness is is that word Mm -hmm. I used before in it. I love how we're like just digging at the bottom of the barrel for words to describe our feelings on this music. (laughs) Well, like I said, it's just, there's, I can't name another like official Pokemon song that really sounds like it. Um, Yeah. It, It definitely stands alone. And that, and that largely probably goes to the fact that the writers, Corey and, and Jimmy, haven't really done anything else Pokemon related that I'm aware of. I thought maybe they did something that was on like the Pokemon X album, but I did check through the liner notes on that. Uh, by the way, when I say Pokemon X, I mean the album that was 2006, 2007, not the games that came out a few years ago and their soundtrack. <laughs> um, but I did look through there, and um, like I said, uh, John Leffler and David Wolford had teamed up for most of the music at, at this point in the TPCI dub era, um, but they were not involved on this one. Um, does the fact that it, it sounds acoustically quite different bother you at all? No, no, actually, I, I rather enjoy it, so it, it's definitely not a problem. And and maybe I don't know maybe it's it's almost a, a strength to it that it is different from what came before because this was a time it, where on the English side of things Pokemon was entering a different phase so maybe that shakeup is is something welcome to kind of just 
present if we're if we're gonna be different let's be different you know yeah we don't really know since we don't know if this song was written for the movie um it can be certainly construed that way right yeah it may not have been a conscious choice on their part but like again for me that works really well it's just like if we're gonna do something completely different let's let's enjoy something completely different so i definitely think even if it's you know just coincidence it worked out quite well yeah, I mean, I don't certainly don't hate this song or anything. It maybe isn't what I expected. Um, <laughs> but uh, having talked about the style for a little bit, let's talk about the uh, lyrics, because there are definitely some lyrics that match up with various things in the movie. First of all, the the overall arc is sort of about being separated and at least hoping and believing that you will meet again. Now, Kind of, of course, here, you know, being a movie, and this is, you know, the Advanced Generation's last movie, so May and Manaphy are probably never going to have an on-screen reuniting or anything like that. Um, <laughs> Get out there and write your fanfics, guys! <laughs> yeah, so I, I wouldn't count particularly on that, but that's certainly an, an overarching theme that we see a lot. And, um, you know, maybe it, it's also in our minds right now, because we're recording this around the time of the point where Misty and Brock are returning to the show for a, an episode or two in Sun and Moon, so maybe that's why it's a little bit poignant right now. Oh, yeah. But uh, we've heard that, uh, not quite like this, but I think that definitely fits this particular movie, because, you know, as you go through, May realizes that she's going to only going to know Manaphy for a little bit, even though they are quite close. But there are a few other lines that do reference certain things in the movie. Uh, one of them is, I think it says, if you see me in a raindrop or something like that, or something to that effect. And, uh, of course, in the opening sequence, this is another movie without the opening theme for that season, they do something quite different. It's not one of those little slow ones like in movie six or seven. It's actually, it is a musical thing, but it's not the opening theme for the season. They have these little... Things where, like, uh, Meditite and Medicham will manipulate these large bubbles of water. Mm-hmm. And so that, that sort of called back to that, either intentionally or not. I'm not sure. Yeah. And uh, the other one that really jumped out to me as something from the movie is it mentions, I, I'm pretty sure it mentions the moon in there. And, of course, the sort of uh, climax of the movie when they actually get to the temple occurs during a lunar eclipse. So that's sort of the connection there. I wouldn't say it's... Because it kind of jumps around a bit, there's not a a super organization. It's not as... I I think the laser focus to the plot of the movie, uh, standard for English at this point, is probably still We're a Miracle. Um, (laughs) Irony of ironies. (laughs) Yeah, the, the one that isn't definitely not written for that particular movie, but fits very well. But it definitely calls out some things. Uh, do you, do you feel that worked? Yeah, I definitely did. Like I, like I was saying earlier, if, if you'd have told me they had written this specifically for movie nine, it was it's definitely about May and Maffy. I would have believed you. Like, there's just so many lines that kind of just call the together Pokemon. The fact that May and Maffy are separated, like so much. And, uh, you know, maybe you can tie it into some of the other characters, too, a little bit, because there's always, um, you know, Jack Walker, the Pokemon Ranger of the title. It, it, you know, one thing I remember from the 
Pokemon Ranger games, there's sort of this oath that you sort of read through. That, um, oh. and that sort of, to me, ties into, you know, together we make a promise. And maybe that, that does tie a little bit into his character. Also, the connection between, like, the people of the water or whatever it's called in the movie. So. Yeah, the, the lines about a chapter closes in a story, a finish to a start, that could very much be re- reminiscent of, like, how they've been looking forward to this story. Um, and, you know, the day that Manaphy would come and the Prince of the Sea and the, all those legends. And now that chapter has closed. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of inspiration you could take from that. So I think there's definitely some things there. Like I said, no idea if it was actually written. It's not so dead on that I would automatically assume it. But um, that's what I've got to say there. So, having discussed the songs themselves, I think we're already um, <laughs> uh, able to go into part three, where we sort of compare and contrast and decide which one is better. These, acoustically, they're quite different, hmm. and I would say that Together We Make a Promise is definitely more locked on to the movie. However, part of me likes the production of A Thing to Be Protected better I've I've heard the the Japanese one more than uh, together we make a promise. But and do you have any any comparative thoughts here? Well, I'm kind of with you in that I I love Mamoru Bekimono, a thing to be protected. I like it better. I because I have very emotional feels about this movie that are not actually related to the plot. Like I do prefer that that song as well, just for its emotional impact. But I think you're right that um, Together We Make a Promise is a bit more locked onto the themes. There is, like, I didn't mention this when I was talking about the lyrics, but in um, Mamoru Bekimono, there's a line kind of towards the beginning where it kind of talks about the per- the character's insecurities and, like, I always gave up, I was unable to keep my promises, and you grew further away, and... Like a lot of people might not know this if they only listen to the show in English because it's something that's hard to translate. But the character of Mei, Haruka, she actually, most of her lines end in kind of a, a, a word that kind of negates everything she says. Like she basically ends every sentence in maybe to the point that some of the other characters have like nicknamed her Kamalchan, like because she's just always says everything as an insecure or unsure phrase even if what she's talking about is like dead sure like it is raining she'll still save it as like maybe it's sort of kind of raining so like there are a few lines like that in this song that talk about you know the character unable to really commit to things at the time she was with you know her her friend or her lover and you know unable to be straight basically that kind of remind me of may but even then, it's so vague compared to Together We Make a Promise. So it's tough for me to call. I almost I almost want to give it to Together We Make a Promise just because that is my default, is, is like, does it fit the movie better? But yeah, yeah, I think in terms of instrumentation and production, I think this is going to be a split decision. I can't, <laughs> in terms of instrumentation and production, I prefer uh, a thing to be protected. Mm-hmm. In terms of lyrics and tying to the movie, I definitely prefer Together We Make a Promise. It's just fuzzy. Because they have different categories there, 
Toss-up doesn't quite sound right, because I don't know that they're close, but I can't really tell if they're far, so maybe maybe that's the problem <laughs> I'm having. I, I don't know. It's It's just... Yeah, and it kind of all comes down to, I guess, on how we judge it. <laughs> yeah, it, this is one of the, the tougher ones. I don't know that I can really state a preference, but I just don't like calling it a, a tie either, because mm. they're they're rather different, but neither one of them hits me so well that I want to put it ahead of the other. So it's sort of a, a maybe a more neutral tie than like a... Okay. Um, you know, in a specific area, it's kind of nebulous is the best I can think of. Gotcha. Um, some trivia uh, for a thing to be protected, um, in, in case it sways you, Rika Matsumoto, the voice of Satoshi, actually did a cover of this song. And when you have Ash Ketchum kind of singing it, it takes on a very different meaning that I almost would have preferred to be associated with the movie Nine, even though it's not really his movie. It's really more May's movie, but he did things too. He did, and actually some people <laughs> do fault the movie, thought that May should have been the one to save the day in the end. In the, I know, uh, right? <laughs> that uh, she should have at least gotten that. I mean, you know, Max couldn't really do that in movie six because he's not really a trainer, so, but May could have at least done some, some stuff there, but that's that's really not not totally relevant here, I suppose. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I think this is sort of a – it's a toss-up, but it's a nebulous one. I just can't – I think it's the fact I just can't draw enough lines from one to the other to make a firm judgment. Hmm. I would agree with that. And it's not a case like movie – well, it's not like movie for at all. I think the English one is a bit more serious than, you know, celebiare, A-T-E – Maybe that makes I don't know. We could talk about this probably all night and not come to anything. I think this is one of those, to be honest. Right. Yeah, to take it out of like the context of this movie, where do these two songs fall with you just on Pokemon in general? Like on your Pokemon playlist, would both of them be on it? Do you feel it like ties in better to the series, maybe? They'd both be Okay, they wouldn't be one of the the top hits, either of them. Not that I hated any of them, but neither of them hooks me super hard. I I certainly see both of these if this was your style of music, Mm. or on the Japanese side, if you had a little more insight into the lyrics, I could see it hooking you a little bit better. Mm. But yeah, I I think that maybe where we have to leave these two songs, it's that they're just not that comparable. I suppose we should ask our one other question um, that we usually ask about the Japanese song. I think it would have been worthwhile to try and translate this and adapt it directly. You know, I almost think you could have, and it would have been very interesting because it's a genre of music that is not unfamiliar to Westerners. So it's really just a case of translating the lyrics and finding appropriate words to convey the same feeling. And given that it does use a little bit of English in the chorus, like, you can kind of get a feel for where the beats fall. So, yeah, I think you could have been very successful in doing this if someone had wanted to try. And the contracts all worked out. That's the tricky part, usually. As, As tricky as translating a song can be getting the contracts done, especially at this time where everything was in flux, kind of, and still yeah. settling from the from the, the rights handover. Right, yeah, getting the rights to release and distribute in the U.S. would have been 
carried more weight than its its feasibility otherwise. But yeah, if if someone had wanted to or wants to today make a cover of this in English, I think this is a song that would have been very successful. Okay, so let's talk about some of the other musical aspects of this film. Uh, we mentioned one already. This movie, if you're keeping track, does not have the opening theme for this season in it. Uh, on the Japanese side, that would have been, I believe, Spurt. Mm-hmm. And English side, that would have been Battle Frontier. Uh, no relation to anything from the games or the season eight Japanese opening theme with the same name. <laughs> um, yeah, Spurt did make it into the movie. Yeah, I think um, there's a little bit of it somewhere, but I think yeah, they... it's kind of a, a slower, more ballady version of it. Actually, it's kind of weird, but it's in there. Yeah, I, I, from what I re- recall hearing, they did edit that out of the uh, American version, almost certainly for rights reasons. So yeah, I think they replaced it with "Together We Make a Promise," like a, a, an arrangement of that. Hmm, I'll have to double check on that one. But um, you know, they have. A musical opening, but it's an original instrumental song where they play the uh, the opening titles over that performance there. That's not quite the same as movie six or seven. How do you think that one worked out? I mean, I like it, but I don't love it. Like, it's it's forgettable, but it, it doesn't do anything wrong. Like, it's kind of upbeat for, you know, the the training and the and the performance that the characters are doing. But, like, I don't care about it. I don't remember it later. Like, I would say I, I'm disappointed. Like, hmm. yeah. I mean, it's okay. But. Yeah, I don't think they would have spliced in the... Because I don't think it would have worked tempo-wise for either of those themes to be spliced into that scene. I do think, um, you know, they would have had to come up with something different, like they sometimes do as a different type of opening. So, But I like it visually. I think visually that's that's a nice little change of pace to have something like that. It's always... Mm-hmm. Fun when we get to see Pokemon's abilities being used for something that's not battling, something artistic. Um, that's always a fun thing to see in the anime. Oh yeah, yeah. No, the the imagery is gorgeous, and the idea of like a street performance, and, and you know these traveling, this little traveling performing artist company. Like, there's a lot of great going on in the opening. It's almost just a shame that the music doesn't support it the way you want the score to support it. It just kind of is there but yeah <laughs> for me going on to the score let's let's talk about that this has a very distinct um style for most of it very much a you know marimba and other sort of quote unquote tropical instruments in this in this movie score yeah other than a few tracks which was kind of interesting there's one or two that sound more like the stuff you hear like especially in the later pokemon movies that uh Shinji Miyazaki tends to to compose, and it sounds actually kind of a little out of place. The one or two that sound like that and don't have the standard or the uh, the, the the sound like the stuff in the rest of the movie. Right? Yeah, that that is true. I, I probably should ask: Is the English score because I've I've not seen it as much or all the way through? Is the English score the same as the Japanese score? Or I recognize most of the stuff. There is okay. one thing on the Japanese album I wanted to bring up in a little bit, um, okay. because I don't think it was, I didn't hear it anywhere in the English version, and I'm wondering where it might have been used in the Japanese version. Oh, okay. Huh. But yeah, this is another one. It goes all the way through the end of, uh, five, uh, Generation 5, where they are still using the Japanese ones for the most part, unless there's a, 
a derivative of a vocal song or something like that, they generally edit that out. Right, okay. But, uh, yeah, that, that, that goes through a lot of it. And then, like I said, there's this one or two that sounds, oh, this could have been in a different Pokemon movie. It doesn't sound like this one. Yeah. Now, we had talked in previous times about, for example, Movie 5 has several different styles within the movie. Mm-hmm. But they kind of gel. This one has a different style for, like, 80 or 90% of it. The one that has that uh, tropical vibe to it. Uh, what do you think about that? I actually do like it. I like the the different feel. It's kind of just like I was saying with that opening thing. It's just it feels like it needed to be more to match some of the things that were happening. But I mm. do actually love that they tried some different instruments and you know tried like again that marimba and the tropical feel for this movie that takes place by the sea and just kind of has a very different sort of visual vibe. And I agree with you that the. the few times where you kind of go back into traditional Pokemon score feel, it doesn't quite work anymore. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if they did a bunch of stuff on the side, they needed one or two more and they couldn't get like the original instrumentation or something like that, but mm. that would be interesting to know, or if they consciously made a choice that they couldn't use it there or come up with some sort of compromise. I'm not sure. Hard to say. <laughs> now, there is one track on the Japanese album that really sticks out. Um, and I, I think it's called, um, the translation I've seen is like Eats Thought. If you listen to it on the Japanese score album, it's basically like a, an acapella group of some sort, some description, doing like a do, 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 and something like that. Is that actually in the Japanese version of the movie somewhere? Yeah, it's it is in the Japanese version. It's the interlude where like May is playing with uh, Manaphy, and they're all swimming in the ocean and kind of traveling to get to the the temple location. Yeah. So in my viewing today, I'm pretty sure I never heard that, and that's not terribly <laughs> surprising. Um, the vocal part of it, um, it probably was something that was not covered in the Pokemon Company's contract with the Japanese side. Um, to reuse elsewhere. That that stuff is always tricky, as we've sort of alluded to before, so not entirely surprising. I'm not sure exactly what they might have replaced it with. It's kind of a shame, uh, to be honest, but I can understand why it happened, and uh, I know that that, that sort of gets um, to people sometimes when that kind of thing happens, but given the circumstances, not totally surprising. I did kind of want to mention it, though, because I'm a, a fairly big acapella fan. Um, I do like a, a number. I mean, I grew up uh, listening to a couple groups you may have heard of. Um, one of them was a Canadian acapella group called the Nylons, and another one is called uh, Rockapella, who some of you will know for doing the theme song to the uh, Carmen Sandiego game show on PBS. Um, so, grew up listening to a fair bit of that, so when I heard that in the album, that was, uh, that was pretty neat. Uh, the Nylons actually are one of my, my favorite bands of all time. I didn't pick them for our Never Did a Pokemon Song uh, thing because most of their songs are actually covers, uh, which is common with acapella groups. But I did want to call that one out. Like I said, kind of a shame it didn't make it over to the English side, but uh, definitely check it out if you give it a chance. It's, speaking of things that are different from like every other Pokemon song out there, it'd be fun to know who who, who did that. I, yeah. I just don't really know, unfortunately. Yeah, there's not a ton of information, like, even on the sites that are very good at, at getting the liner notes and the credits. So, yeah, that would be very interesting to know who those people are and if they, like, have a 
have a career as an acapella group outside of this Pokemon movie. And I can't really tell, like, if they're a Japanese group or an English group or something like right, that, because yeah. they're, they're not saying any actual words. doesn't sound maybe like they have a, a super heavy accent, so maybe they contract it out. But, oh well. But, uh, yeah, so that's that's sort of the, the gamut of things there. Now, there's one other thing we should probably mention, because it is sort of loosely, I think, associated with this movie, at least in the U.S. There is a... Pikachu and Meowth short that um, has some stuff in it, and I think there's a there's a song on the Japanese um, score album. I'm not sure if it's in that short or what, called like uh, Big Meowth Day or something like that. I don't know if there's an English equivalent because I haven't really seen this short, but if I've probably seen it once and then like never seen it again, so there's not much I could tell you. Yeah. Another one of those fun little Meowth songs uh, that, that they do a lot of in, in Japan, but uh, I guess in, in English it just hasn't been as, uh, they haven't been as uh, interested in doing that. Yeah, the, when I worked for a daycare in Japan, the, like the, they actually had a book of Pokemon songs that the, one of the teachers would bring out a guitar and play, and like the kids all sang along to every single one of them. So whatever this song is, like I'm sure it was a hit with the small children. <laughs> was that a just out of curiosity? Was that a, a book of, of things from the anime, or was that stuff? Yeah, from... yeah. Okay. Um, Pokemon anime music, and like a lot of them w- were like Meowth songs, um, like Nyasi no Party and Poka Doka, and like a, a lot of those like Pokemon Ierukana or or like the what type of Pokemon are you sort of genre of songs, like a lot of those types. So a lot of the music that we would have heard in the shorts. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with a, um, uh, a Can You Play Pokemon in Musical Instruments, which is game music that comes with the CD and sheet music. I unboxed that a year or two ago. Oh, how fun. But uh, yeah, that's always kind of kind of neat things to find there. Okay, so I think that's going to wrap up our discussion of Movie 9, the Manaphy movie. Now, you may remember from the last time, our next episode is not Movie 10. We'll be getting to that. But in between, since this is the last Advanced Generation movie, um, before we start the Diamond and Pearl movies and discussing those end themes, we decided we'd do another special episode. And uh, as we announced last time, we are going to be discussing underrated Pokemon songs. And then after that, of course, we'll do the uh, Movie 10, the Darkrai movie. Um, so that's sort of our plan over the next few episodes. All right. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Anne. It's been great having you on. Oh, thank you. Always a pleasure. This has been Stephen Reich from the Pokepress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, on the phone with Anne discussing the ending themes of the Manaphy movie. Hi. I'm Stephen Reich, here at the Pokepress PRN Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Brian Steckler, who is a songwriter who uh, co-wrote Catch Me If You Can from the Pokemon the First Movie soundtrack. Uh, but before we get to that, Brian, uh, very glad to have you on today. Uh, where are you from, and uh, how did you get started doing music for a living? Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm excited to be here. So I live now in Northern California in uh, near a little town called Auburn, and uh, we're about halfway between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe, so it's a beautiful place to live. I grew up in Midland, Michigan, um, 
lived there through college and then um, moved from there to Nashville, spent a few years in Nashville, then moved to L.A., spent seven years in L.A., and then moved up here for the last 10. So that's the short version of where I'm from. <laughs> and uh, besides songwriting, you do some uh, keyboard work. Uh, How did you get into that? Yeah, well, like uh, most kids, my mom made me play the piano starting at about six and forced me, bribed me to stay with it through uh, high school. And by that time, I was really into it and uh, decided I wanted to go into music and went to Western Michigan University and graduated with a degree in piano performance. Though while I was there, I spent uh, as much or more time in the recording studio uh, engineering and learning about that that, that I did um, in the practice room, practicing the piano. So um, at this point, I'm a much better studio guy than I am piano player. So. <laughs> All right. And then uh, what was some of your first stuff uh, once you got out of college uh, doing things professionally? Well, I had a buddy in college um, who worked for a jingle company in Nashville. He was actually in their Chicago office, but he was able to get me a connection to that company in Nashville. So I got hired as the tape dub boy. Basically, I was the guy in the way back room. It was kind of a closet uh, making cassette copies of the jingles that the producers were producing in the studio, and then I would take those cassette copies that I made and drop them in the FedEx uh, envelopes and run them to the drop-off and that kind of thing. And But pretty quickly, I went from uh, Tape Dub Boy in the back uh, room to writing and producing jingles. So. And uh, after doing some uh, work in advertising, you eventually got into sort of more, maybe more mainstream music. Uh, how did that come about? Well, the the guy that got me the job at Hummingbird Productions, this is the name of the jingle company in Nashville, um, he and I, of course, were good friends and decided as that company was sort of folding in on itself that we would much rather be writing songs and producing records than doing jingles for our entire career. So um, the two of us and a friend we had made who was a, kind of a business um, guy um, decided that we wanted to try and move to L.A. and break into the songwriting, pop music, record label biz out there. Um, so we moved out 97, 98, somewhere in there, um, to L.A. and set up our studios and started trying to meet some people. Um, and my partner actually had a connection to Jim Vellutato at Sony um, ATV Publishing, who I think was the Sony side, uh, you know, that, that coordinated the Catch Me If You Can song um, for us. So, um, but Smitty, my partner, was friends with Angela at the time because they are from the same area um, up in Oregon. So they actually knew each other from before we moved to L.A. So. Yeah, so you, you alluded to it a little bit there. How did this, uh, this song project for the first movie, how did that get started uh, as far as your involvement there? Well, like I said, Smitty and Angela had gotten to know each other, and um, at the same time, Angela was working on trying to get a record deal, um, and eventually did a uh, record deal with Sony, uh, with uh, Atlanta, Lava uh, Atlantic Records, and her publishing deal, because uh, she was a songwriter as well, uh, was with Sony ATV. And um, because Smitty had come kind of along with her. Uh, she, he'd written some demos with her and done some production. Um, Sony also signed Smitty and I to 
write songs uh, specifically for her record. And then also, you know, then we were uh, songwriters for other artists as well, um, you know, through Sony. As far as the Pokemon project, we were, at the time we were still just writing songs for her record um, when we must have gotten a call from Atlantic, who I believe put the soundtrack together, asking her to write something specifically for the movie. And uh, how much information about the movie were you get were you given? Was it uh, did they give you any details about the scene it was supposed to be using, or was that not final at that point? How did that work? Yeah, I don't remember exactly. Um, my guess is, yeah, that they said this scene is needing something. It's kind of a chase scene, um, but it needs to be happy and fun and upbeat, and you know, it's kind of a kids movie. And you know, I didn't really know anything about it. Um, I'd heard of Pokemon, but that was about as far as it went for me. So the fact that it was a first movie told me that um, this was new, at least to our market. <laughs> and we didn't, I didn't know what we were getting into. And um, I'm not sure Angela did, though, as I recall, she was really the one that came up with the Catch Me If You Can and sort of the, the basics for, um, you know, the hook of the song. And and then she and I kind of filled the rest of it in once she sort of came to me with that, the nugget to start with. So, Pretty neat. How long did it take you, do you think, to, to actually write the song then? You seem to have some good ideas to start off with. Did things go fairly smoothly thereafter? Yeah. Um, Angela, she was very young still at the time. I think she was, I don't know, 17 or 18. She was a pretty solid writer already um, and came with a lot of ideas and and so it made it easy for me, uh, being a little more experienced, to, to sort of steer her uh, where necessary or, you know, sort of help her uh, nudge the lyrics into the, the right spot or find a melody that would be a little bit more um, accessible to a younger audience or, or whatever. So, um, But uh, time-wise, I doubt we spent more than a day on the writing side of it, and I'm sure the track probably came together pretty quick as well and, and she was a great singer so it was easy to to cut vocals with her and and get good stuff down so um, I would guess you know overall writing and recording might have been two or three days tops so um, then we did get to spend a full day mixing it uh, in stereo with Dave Pensado who's you know still one of the biggest mixer guys in LA that you're going to find. Um, so we did a stereo mix with him and then we did a, um, a surround mix of that song that's in the movie that um, was one of the few that was still new at that time to mix music in the surround, even for a, for a film. It was uh, a little unusual to, to mix a pop song in surround. It was very fun because we were trying all kinds of crazy things to figure out what, what would be cool. But uh um, ended up being, you know, still pretty pretty safe <laughs> once, you, once you actually got to the, the end of it. So, yeah, it was, that was fun, mixing with Dave. So. All right. Well, you know, that's that's pretty neat. You got to do some, um, at the time, probably uh, bleeding-edge uh, technical stuff there for the movie. And, uh, you know, you didn't work on uh, maybe one song that they might know, obviously, that you didn't work on Wonderland from 2000, and you didn't work on Picture Perfect either, but you did do a bunch of other stuff for Angela. Uh, what was some of that stuff like? 
Yeah, it was really cool um, because we were working with Lava Atlantic on her record for her record deal, and so it was fun writing stuff. And um, at one time, before they decided to um, go a different direction, they told us that you know the first three radio singles from her you know big release were songs that either I or my partner had written with Angela. And so we got to do, you know, cool mixes with the heavy hitter mixing guys and um, mastering studios in L.A. and kind of play the full uh, big time pop producer role <laughs> for a little while there um, with Angela. And, and it was fun. You know, we even did sessions in New York City. We had to go over there and um, do sessions with a... Um, Spanish uh, coach because she was redoing the the whole album over in Spanish for a kind of a dual release thing and uh, it was pretty cool we did we did some really cool things when we were working with her however things didn't didn't quite work out for Angela it seems uh the things kind of kind of fell through like, tell us a little bit about that well from what we understood is that they were you know really close to releasing her record and her radio singles and um, sort of at the very last second, they decided to put her record back on the shelf and give her marketing slot to up-and-coming Willa Ford, um, who came up right around then and did a few kind of really big hits, and uh, and I think she does reality TV now. <laughs> yeah, I, I should point out that Willa Ford, lest you think that uh, this is the closest she's ever come to Pokemon, uh, her birth name is uh, Amanda Lee Williford, and uh, it actually previously had the stage name of Manda, and she has a song on the Pokemon the first movie soundtrack. A uh, uh, little bit, little bit of trivia there for our audience, but I did want to mention that just because it is kind of relevant in this context. Well, yeah, it's kind of sad to hear things didn't work out for Angela. She's still out there. She still does uh, some music here or there sort of as an independent artist. So, uh, she's, you know, she's still doing stuff. Uh, but what about you? You, uh, you know, obviously are still doing music. Uh, what's some of the stuff you've worked on kind of recently? Well, I, um, again, I'm in Northern California and work with a lot of local artists, um, Sacramento and, uh, you know, I do singer, work with singer-songwriters. I've worked with, um, you know, pop artists or a few kind of rock bands, um, uh, I have a studio, so I can do a lot here um, right at home. And um, uh, I also do a lot of composing kinds of jobs for sometimes commercials or um, corporate industrial things or um, film and TV underscore sorts of things. I actually, when you see Dog the Bounty Hunter on TV, um, almost every episode has a, a piece of music of mine stuck in there somewhere. So, um but there's lots more shows than that. That's just the one that uses the most. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, you know, it, it varies being an independent producer, not in LA means I kind of have to fill my time and, and my checkbook by taking whatever, um, different kinds of gigs come along, whether it's, um, producing a full record for an artist or just mixing for people that record elsewhere or, you know, like I say, I play piano, so sometimes I'll just do tracks for other people and send those back to them. So it's a little bit, a little bit of a lot of different things. All right, and you know, it is the holiday season right now? We're coming up on Christmas, and uh, maybe a few years back, you did put out a little Christmas album. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about that? 
I did. It's really the only thing I've ever released under my own name, just because I'm always working for somebody else to try and make them sound great. Um, but my wife kept telling me, oh, you really should do your own CD. So I did. Uh, it's called Christmas with Hensley. Um, Hensley is the name that we've given our little Steinway piano that we have in the house. And what we decided to do was for me to bang on it and play it and pluck the strings on the inside and create these tracks in in unusual ways uh, other than just sitting down and playing songs on the piano. So it sounds like a lot more than just a piano, but it isn't. It's uh, Well, in fact, if you've ever heard of the piano guys, sometimes they do stuff kind of like that where they bang on the inside or they strum across the strings or um, or whatever. But uh, that's, that's kind of what I did. It's all kind of smooth, uh, easy to have in the background, Christmas carols. Um, it's really good for your Christmas party or, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So. <laughs> Yep, and, and that's available digitally. All right. Well, uh, one more thing. You have a website, and uh, do you have any social media stuff? Why don't you talk about that here? Sure. My website um, for my the, the work that I do as a producer is uh, briansteckler.com, and then I have a second website for my composer guy kind of stuff, the film and TV um, and commercials and stuff, uh, and that's called thestickhouse.com, uh, and that's... Uh, uh, that's pretty much it. I'm also on Facebook. You can find me there or on Twitter at uh, Steckler Music. All right. Well, you know, great having you on. Uh, great to learn some new things that we didn't know before about the, uh, the music uh, writing process. All right. Well, thank you very much, Brian. It's been great having you. Thanks, Stephen. It's been fun. This has been Stephen Reich from the Pokey Press Pierre and Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, on the phone with Brian Steckler, co-writer of Catch Me If You Can from Pokemon the First Movie. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest Podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. Do you want to do a discussion about the voice actor changeover since this is – we've sort of referenced it a little bit. Do you want to do – like, do you have much to say there? I was – you know, going back, it was not that difficult for me, to be honest, other than – well, Max's voice in the TPCI dub for the year or so he was there is pretty close to his four kids' voice. Um, not quite perfect or anything like that. But um, And then the other voices I got used to because, um, you know, Ash, Brock – Team Rocket, they all stuck around longer, so mm. I just have I, they are different voices, but I can sort of say, okay, this is the four kids' voice, this is the TPCI voice. The May one was the one that really threw me. <laughs> like I said, maybe they didn't try put as much into it just because they knew she wasn't going to be around a while, so they weren't going to look super hard for someone or whatever. But yeah, it the I would say like if we're gonna have this discussion on the air, like I would say. May's the changeover voice for May is a lot closer to Cowdery's voice for Haruka than Veronica Taylor's voice for May. Hmm. You know, I, I have a similar observation. I haven't heard Haruka's voice all that much, but uh, Satoshi, between the songs and, and little clips I've heard here and there, I always think of Sarah's as like a halfway in between uh, what, just uh, Veronica Taylor's Ash and Rika Matsumoto's Satoshi. I always felt like Sarah was kind of a halfway in between there. 
Yeah, she definitely has more of that rough quality that Veronica Taylor never quite got. It's It's been really interesting, actually. Like, I've been watching Sun and Moon in English a lot, and there's something about Sun and Moon and the demands that it places on the character of Ash that the gentleness is finally coming out, which is, like, something I felt that Sarah's voice was really lacking, and it's kind of why I, I had trouble kind of getting on board with her. Mm. So, like, but again, Sun and Moon is just a region that allows Ash to be quiet and calm and gentle. So a lot of those qualities from Rika that I fell in love with and that Veronica Taylor was quite good at, like, I'm now starting to see some of them in the current English Ash. And I I now feel like these characters are a bit more connected, Mm. whereas for a while they were feeling really separate. (laughs) And that's nice. (laughs) Yeah, well, like I said... uh... Rockstar in excess, that got me uh, prepped yeah. for this. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, you'd think I'd be more because I'm a fan of Kotsune, but yeah. <laughs> I did notice the voices were pretty close, having gone to see some recent stuff with like Team Rocket and Ass. They're pretty close to where they are now. Um, uh. I, I thought I had remembered Jesse's voice getting progressively closer to, to Rachel Lillis's original Jesse, but I think they have gotten to... I think it, at, th- at least by this point, because they've been working on it for a few months. Yeah, that's yeah. It is, yeah, it's kind of that question though of like soundalikes versus acting. Because Team Rocket is one of those where I would say they sound a lot alike, but they don't act the same at all. And it's that may well be down more to writing and translation preferences. And yeah, it might be more direction is probably what it is. Because I, it's not like I don't think these people can act. It's just like they are clearly coming at it from a different place and it's weird <laughs> they're on a little bit of a different wavelength yeah <laughs> but uh, that that's what happens i guess when you have new directors and new actors and new script writers and new everything <laughs> something new happens 